This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. As the Supreme Court term ends, the analysis of its decisions begins. The biggest question, how would a newly established conservative majority handle controversial issues? In some cases, the justices formed unusual alignments. In others, for example, involving gay rights versus religious rights, they reached narrow but unanimous decisions. In still others, the justices split down ideological lines on issues like voting rights and union rights. One thing is certain, the day of the swing justice is gone, at least for now. Joining me is constitutional law professor Stephen Vladek of the University of Texas Law School. Steve, many say the court didn't tilt as far to the right as expected. What's your take on the term? I mean, I I think those who suggest that the term was more moderate than people expected, I think, are selling something. I think this was about as conservative a term as we've seen from the Supreme Court, really, since the 1930s. And, you know, the fact that there are two or three cases where the court didn't go quite as far as some conservatives wanted and some liberals feared doesn't disprove that. To the contrary, I think, you know, on issue after issue, the court moved sharply and overwhelmingly to the right this term, for better or for worse. People point to the fact that they only lined up along strict ideological lines, six to three in seven of the 56 cases. Doesn't that show that it's more of an incremental change? No, I mean, I think there are lots of problems with that statistic. The first is it's not including cases where they peeled off one of the conservatives. And I would include cases like the Arthrex case about patent judges, where Justice Thomas wasn't willing to go as far as his conservative colleagues. The other problem, June, is that focusing only on 56 argued cases misses the dozens of important orders and rulings the court handed down on the shadow docket, where there were plenty of ideological splits. I mean, if we just look at cases where the three Democratic appointees alone dissented, There were 18 of those on the shadow docket. If we add where the three of them were joined by a conservative, there were 21. And so, you know, I think the efforts by some in the media to portray this as a less conservative term and a less divisive term than people might have been expecting really does require looking at the court through a rather stilted pair of glasses. David Cole, the national legal director of the ACLU, said the justices really rose above the partisan divide. I take it you disagree with that. I mean, you know, where you stand is a function of where you sit. And I think the ACLU had a pretty good term in the Supreme Court. But, you know, June, the reality is that I think there were moments this term where the justices rose above the partisan divide. I mean, I think we ought not to lose sight of the fact that the court stayed out of just about all of those big election-related disputes starting in November, that the court did not take up Texas's bizarre effort to sue four other states, that the court did not take up Congressman Mike Kelly's efforts to overturn the results in Pennsylvania. So, you know, I certainly think we can point to individual instances where the court acted in a way that was very institutionally appropriate and not overtly ideological or partisan. That doesn't change the fact that in the mine run of decisions from the court, both in the argued cases and in cases that weren't argued, you know, we saw pretty sharp turns toward conservative legal views, and we saw pretty sharp divisions among the justices as those turns were underway. Did you see a coalition among the conservative justices or not? I mean, I think the the reality is that there are going to be cases where all six of the conservative justices are aligned, 
We saw that in some of the biggest decisions from the term, the Cedar Point nursery case, the Arizona voting rights case, the California donor disclosure case. And I think not surprisingly, there are going to be cases where they are a bit more divided into what we might think of as two camps, right? One with Justices Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch in it, and one with the Chief Justice and Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett. And, you know, I think there are lots of efforts by conservatives to paint the Kavanaugh, Barrett, Chief Justice Roberts block as moderate. I don't think they're moderate. I think they just have a different judicial temperament than Alito, Gorsuch, and Thomas, that they share the same views, but perhaps are not quite as eager to move the court and the doctrine so quickly to accommodate those views. So looking at Justice Barrett, experts say she may be more interested in incremental changes as the chief is, but she did flip the court on religion and COVID restrictions. What do you make of her participation? Yeah, I mean, I think there's no question that Justice Barrett had a sizable impact on the court and that her replacing Justice Ginsburg moved the court in ways both obvious and not obvious. So there were at least a couple of cases, June, as you know, where the court split five to four with Justice Barrett in the majority, the Arthrex case being one example, TransUnion being another, where it stands to reason that if Justice Ginsburg had still been on the court, those cases would have come out the other way. But you're right to point to the COVID religious liberty cases. I mean, you know, there are cases where, as recently as last summer, efforts to challenge, for example, California's COVID restrictions on religious liberty grounds were failing in the court five to four. And by November, they were succeeding five to four. And the difference was Justice Barrett. So, you know, I think she clearly made a difference behind the seat. I think she also, you know, in those major cases where she wrote separately, you know, reflected that exact notion that she's not in quite as much of a hurry, perhaps as some of her other conservative colleagues. The final day, they handed down two six-to-three decisions, one limiting the Voting Rights Act and another limiting disclosure requirements for big donors to charity. Where was the incremental move there? And as I always wonder, do they save those cases until the end before they can get in their cars or in the planes and, and go to vacation? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right to suggest that both the Arizona voting rights case and the Americans for Prosperity case are not exactly good examples of the moderating incremental tone that some commentators have tried to use to describe this term. I mean, I think they're exhibits A and B of a number of exhibits of just how divisive and ideological the court has become. The other thing I think, June, that's interesting is usually it would be the chief justice's preference to not have that be the last word, to actually go out on decisions that make the court look less political. So imagine, for example, if the ACA ruling had come down on the last day, where a 7-2 to two cross-partisan, cross-ideological majority throughout the ACA case. But instead, we're left with those two decisions and the pretty significant impression they leave of a court that's not at all troubled by handing down major opinions that clearly benefit the Republican Party, at least in the moment, and clearly to the detriment of Democrats. That's, you know, an impression I would have thought the court would have been a little less in a hurry to show, to reflect, and yet here we are. Do they decide when... Or does the chief decide when these cases are going to come out? Or is it, as they say, that when the decisions come in, when all the opinions are written, they hand them down? You know, I think it's a combination of both. I mean, I think there's some strategic thinking that goes into the timing of when particular opinions are released. But, you know, the reality is that they went all the way to July 1st. And I think it's the first time other than last year, whereas, you know, they had those special May arguments because of COVID, that the court was still handing down merits decisions in July, since 1996. 
So, you know, I don't think that they were necessarily saving those two cases for last. I think that partly owing to their divisiveness, those took the longest to write. And those were the cases that the justices were still fighting over, literally as the last days of the term were, were counting down. Let me ask you about the union case. Six to three ruling against the labor union, striking down a law enacted 50 years ago due to the efforts of Cesar Chavez. Has there been a union case in recent years where the court ruled in favor of unions? Because I remember the one a couple of years back where they overturned a 40-year precedent. There certainly hasn't been a big ruling in favor of unions in a long time. But I actually think that the Cedar Point nursery decision is more than just a big defeat for unions and for labor organizing in states like California. I think it's an even bigger reassertion of a very strong property rights understanding that June, frankly, is going to have implications far beyond labor organizing. So the notion that any time the government requires access to private property, at least for non-governmental purposes, it's a per se taking. Well, you know, that's going to raise questions about things like the Endangered Species Act. You know, the suggestion that we have an absolute and unalienable right to exclude from our property, that creates questions about why the government's allowed to foist meat inspectors on poultry plants. So it's a big loss for labor, but I actually think it's an even bigger ruling in the property rights regime it contemplates and how that's going to play out in context far removed from union organizing. I want to get your take on the case in Philadelphia where a Catholic social services agency excluded same-sex couples from foster care. So why do you think the liberals went in on that decision? Well, I mean, I, I can't really sort of read their minds. My best guess is that Justice Sotomayor especially, because we've already seen Justice Breyer and Kagan be a little bit more accommodationist in the context of free exercise claims. But I think for Justice Sotomayor and perhaps for Breyer and Kagan as well, Part of it was the desire to throw weight behind the chief's opinion in that case, as opposed to the separate opinion by Justice Alito. You know, the majority opinion in Fulton does move the law a bit and does, I think, make it easier for religious groups to claim a right to exemption or special protections in certain contexts. But of course, it doesn't move the law nearly as much as Justice Alito would have. And I think it's quite possible that faced with the specter of writing a dissent, that would have deprived the court of a majority and therefore required the court to revisit this issue as early as next year versus forming a majority with Chief Justice, trying to moderate that decision, trying to limit its effects. You know, that was an easy choice for at least some of the liberal justices. So do you see the chief's hand, especially in the unanimous results with narrow rulings that sort of kicked the can down the road as far as the main issues concerned? So to a point, I think, you know, we see the chief's hand, but really, June, I think the power base on the court has shifted pretty dramatically from last term, where all people would talk about is how everything was up to the chief, to this term, where I really think it's as Kavanaugh and Barrett go, so went the court. And so, yes, the chief wrote the majority opinion in Fulton, but the only reason why he had a majority was because he was joined by Justice Kavanaugh and Barrett. And I think that's where we're headed, is a court that's going to move as fast or as slow in moving to the right as those two justices in particular are willing to allow it to. So Kavanaugh was in the majority the most, 96% of the time, the chief second with 91%, and Barrett and Gorsuch with 89 and 88. So is that the new center of the court, or do you think there is no center of the court? 
Well, I mean, I think that's the new median of the court. I'm loath to call it the center, right? I don't think there's any question that we assumed when Justice Kavanaugh was confirmed to replace Justice Kennedy that either he or the chief would become the new median. And we saw pretty quickly that it was really the chief. But with Justice Ginsburg's passing and Justice Barrett's confirmation, you know, I think that really not so much marginalizes the chief, but means that he no longer wields the kind of authority and power and determinative vote that he did last term. And so, yes, I think the new median is the court's two newest justices, Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett. And as they go, so will go this court. Now, what about Justice Breyer's role this term? He wrote the consequential majority opinions in the Obamacare case, the cheerleader case, which was on student free speech rights, and the code copyright case at a time when, you know, liberals are calling on him to retire. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's no question that he's still enjoying his job and is very good at it. And I think, you know, the reality from Justice Breyer's position is that he understands the politics, but I think he also understands that the timing really may not be that different this time next year than it is this time this year. There's no rule about when justices have to announce their retirements. There's just a relatively recent norm that they do at the end of the term. But I think June, all things being equal, the odds, I think, are still greatly in favor of Justice Breyer announcing his retirement at least by this time next year. And I think if that happens, you know, all of the criticisms he's been receiving will fade away because barring some really unforeseeable shift in the Senate between now and then, President Biden will get to replace him and he'll get to replace him with someone who presumably by that point, even if it was one of President Biden's own appointees to the lower court, has been in that position for at least a year. Finally, are we going to see a much more conservative court next term when some of the issues that they take up, abortion rights, gun rights? Yeah, I mean, I think we are heading for a a blockbuster term next year compared to this term. And I think that's going to be true as much in the cases that we're paying less attention to as in the high-profile cases like the Second Amendment case from New York, the abortion case from Mississippi. I don't know that that necessarily means that Roe is doomed and that the Second Amendment is going to be all-encompassing. But again, I think this is the key point where I think narratives about the Supreme Court are missing the mark. You know, the question is not, are the conservatives getting every single thing on their wish list? The question is, is the court moving the country and our constitutional doctrine sharply to the right? And it's really hard to see how we get through next term without an even further movement rightward. Thanks, Steve. That's Stephen Vladek of the University of Texas Law School. So far this year, former President Donald Trump stoked a protest at the U.S. Capitol that turned deadly, survived a second impeachment trial, and got cut off by his biggest banks. Trump is facing defamation suits, fraud suits, and Capitol riot suits, plus an ongoing investigation into election fraud in Georgia. But the biggest challenge for the former president may be from the Manhattan District Attorney's Office in the first criminal case to emerge from the years-long investigation of Trump and his business dealings. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Greg Farrell. Tell us about the allegations in the case. The charges against Weisselberg and, and the Trump organization are similar, and they're both wrapped up. They're focused on the conduct of the CFO and how he labeled various basically payments made to himself and presumably other employees and how things that were essentially compensation, either salary or bonus, were underreported 
to the IRS and uh, paid in such a way as that it would not have to be disclosed as as compensation. So the Trump organization benefited by directing or you know sending out monies that they didn't have to get be taxed on. And Alan Weisselberg in particular benefited because he made an annual basically uh, salary and bonus of, I think, $940,000. And this is the key element to it. Weisselberg, for most of the past decade of the period in question, was basically guaranteed a salary and bonus of $940,000. That's not what was reported to the tax authorities. Instead, some lesser number was. And then a series of other payments, some disguised as like a consulting fee or some disguised as other compensation or payments to a school that would actually be Weisselberg's grandchildren went there, the Columbia Preparatory School, et cetera. And these payments would, over you know the course of the year, add up to the full salary and bonus that he was guaranteed. But what was reported was a lesser number. So this wasn't just a one-off or, as the critics and the Trump Organization lawyers tried to say last week, that you know maybe somebody didn't remember that a perk should have been, you know, recorded as tax. This was clearly a pattern, you know, to obscure how much money people got paid, to hide the ways in which they got paid or make it more difficult, and as a result to, uh, you know, help senior executives, or Alan Weisselberg at least at the Trump Organization, um, you know, uh, pay less in tax than he had to, and also presumably help the Trump Organization, you know, avoid paying taxes. There are some pretty audacious claims of personal expenses like new beds, flat screen televisions, carpet installation, and furniture. Those are just so audacious if the IRS looks at that. Yes, I guess you could look at it this way. If someone gets paid a high salary and they want to redecorate their apartment or their son and daughter-in-law's apartment with a flat screen TV and new bed, that God bless them. That's, that's fine. But in order to basically reduce the amount that would have to be paid to the government, reduce the tax that Alan Weisselberg would owe or the payroll tax that the Trump Organization would owe to, you know, allow these payments to be made in such a way as to not attract the attention of the tax man. That's what the, the problem is here. It's not as though the perks are obscene. You know, you remember like the Tyco case, because we, you and I go back a ways, <laughs> and some of the literally obscene expenditures, you know, how much money was paid on shower curtains and a toilet in Dennis Kozlowski's, you know, uh, apartment the Upper East Side. And those were like, that was something the prosecutors trotted out at trial to show like how over the top his compensation was. This is not that. I mean, this is large sums of money. I'm sure forty dollars or $50,000 a crack per year at, you know, the Columbia Prep, a very expensive private school in Manhattan for Weisselberg's grandkids. Uh, but it's not that kind of, you know, everybody has a flat screen TV. <laughs> Instead of paying for it the normal way, um, it was hidden in disguise. It was a direct payment to avoid, you know, the attention of the tax authorities. So the sons had benefits as well. I mean, you mentioned the grandchildren's tuition, yes. but also Correct. apartments. Why weren't yes. they charged? Good question. There's several ways that you could look at this in last week's indictment, you know, from different angles. One is the actual charging document that it is, the charges we just discussed against Weisselberg and against the Trump organization. The other is what's left out, uh, what's included and what's left out. And they included, the prosecutors included the information about how this money flowed to at least one of Weisselberg's sons in the form of a free apartment right on Central Park, as well as tuition payments at a very expensive school. Caleb Melby of Bloomberg did a great story last November calling attention to this, that there was a free apartment that had tax consequences. And this 
grew out of documents that you know were filed in a divorce case between Alan Weisselberg's son Barry and his now ex-wife Jennifer. Um, so I think this attracted the attention of prosecutors, and I think one of the reasons the prosecutors focused and demonstrated that they knew where this money went and who benefited um, is to send a signal to Weisselberg that, you know, we have information on your son as well. And part of the indictment last week is not just to charge crimes or alleged crimes that have to be proven in court. It's also to send a signal to Weisselberg that we're serious about this, and you may want to rethink your position as to whether or not defending yourself and going to court is the best idea. So, you know, I don't know this, but it's a pretty obvious prosecutorial attack that they're demonstrating to him that they have enough information to make a charge of some kind against one of his sons. And that will almost certainly be a factor in Alan Weisselberg's thinking going forward. The New York Attorney General said the investigation goes on. Are we expecting more charges ahead? Given that this is the CFO, I would say yes. They've got plenty more material. I'm not sure they're going to file soon. I actually suspect that the world has changed for Alan Weisselberg in the past week. He's gone from being a guy who was the CFO of the Trump Organization and written about occasionally and obliquely in various news articles as possibly being under investigation. And now, last week, he was on you know page one of most newspapers in the New York area. And in every newscast about the Trump Organization, he's been accused of criminal activity. That changes guys' mindset before it's sort of like possible, but we'll see. And suddenly, no, they did charge me. And now everybody I know and everybody in my social circle and family, it's, it's out there. It's tough to go on and just pretend that, you know, life is business as usual after an event like last week. So that's one thing to keep an eye on. But yes, I think the investigation does continue. It's not as though they're done. Okay, we found, you know, whatever criminality we expected to find, and now we can just shut down the investigation of the Trump Organization and all its senior executives. This looks like the case or the investigation that's closest to the possibility of any criminal liability for Trump himself. Well, I think this is a clear and present danger for the former president. Just the the allegations have been made. It goes to the heart of his existence. He's been best known for decades before he even came on the scene. He wouldn't have been famous had it not been for the Trump Organization and his sort of swashbuckling role as a major player in the real estate market in Manhattan and then a casino operator and then that great career booster on The Apprentice where he was a big success and developed a lot of fans. And this all grew out of the Trump Organization. And this indictment, these charges go to the heart of that. Is this what the organization is? It's like, if it turns out that this was a a large part of the conduct and not like a one-off by a rogue employee, this is at the heart of the creation myth of Donald Trump, you know, his fabulously successful real estate company. As you mentioned, there was a pressure campaign to try to get Weisselberg to flip. How much time would he get here? Would this push him any more than than he already has been pushed because he knew what the charges were going to be coming out. Uh, No, he didn't. So there's a whole psychology around this process of pressuring a key witness when you're uh, in particular white-collar crime case. You need insiders. If you go back to Enron, it took prosecutors a while, but they finally got Andy Fastow, the CFO. And once they had him, you know, they had a key to the safe, to the vault, the black box, and uh, they were able to demonstrate at that trial. Alan Weisselberg plays a similar role here. 
He knows everything about the finances. He knows where the money was paid, why it was paid, and why it wasn't paid, et cetera, et cetera. And, yes, there was a pressure campaign. It was clear that by calling certain witnesses in, et cetera, prosecutors were sending a signal that uh, that Weisselberg should be, be wary. Uh, there were, as far as we know, never any discussions about cooperating, but this is how the dance works. And so they hit him with a series of charges. And uh, once again, to go back to what I think the Trump Organization's lawyers expected was something that was very much small ball, just like, okay, so he got the use of a Mercedes, uh, you know, year in, year out, he and his wife, they didn't report on taxes, big deal. Um, But the indictment uh, cast a much longer shadow than that. It was not just the Mercedes, it was a bunch of these other things that were enumerated. And most, I think, damaging to Weisselberg was that one charge, grand larceny in the second degree. Most of the other charges that uh, he was hit with are, you know, three to four year max. And if you're convicted on all of them, it's not like you'll have to serve three to four years times, you know, six or however many charges they are for a total of uh, 20 years. No, they tend to all, you know, get to be served at the same time. And maybe the maximum he'd actually serve in jail would be two years. But the grand larceny charge uh, is what exposes to a maximum to of 15 years. So if he, he could get as many as, you know, if he's convicted on that and he gets, say, half of it, eight or ten, and then some of these other charges, it's like for a 73-year-old guy, that's real time. Uh, it is for anybody, but he's, you know, he's a guy in his golden years. So the grand larceny charge is key here, and it's, it's very interesting. It's uh, in some ways the smallest amount of money involved because they enumerate a total of $1.76 million in funds that Weisselberg you know, didn't pay taxes on but enjoyed the benefit of and got to start a Keo IRA with, et cetera, et cetera. But of that $1.76 million, there's a subset of $94,000 in change, almost $95,000 in federal tax refunds that Weisselberg got. So in other words, uh, most of these other crimes are tax-related. He failed to report income. Or, you know, didn't report it properly, et cetera, et cetera. That's the whole pattern. But in this one one, he submitted his tax statements to the federal government, and because he underreported his income, he got a refund. So he's not basically just hiding or, you know, disguising money that he's, you know, uh, earned or received from the Trump organization and not paying full taxes on it. He's actually going and sending a document to the federal government and getting a tax return and year in and year out it was like 10 grand this year 15 grand that year two grand the other year but over the course of more than 10 years it added up to ninety four thousand dollars of money he extracted from the government so that's why that's a more serious charge and has a much longer a much greater you know uh, uh, sentencing range for judges so now we don't go back as far as this, but this sort of reminds me of Al Capone uh, <laughs> because because they couldn't get him on the real crime, so they got him on tax evasion. Um, I guess I would uh, offer a different view on the Al Capone part, Al Capone <laughs> being a no, no, notorious no-obster who killed lots of people or was responsible for the death of lots of people. And of course, we're not talking about anything even near that here. Right. Um, there are allegations that the Trump Organization, you know, uh, didn't tell the truth to banks, didn't, you know, uh, provide, you know, accurate financial numbers to banks and insurance companies, et cetera, and therefore, you know, could have defrauded these banks. So there's that. That would be, that's that's in what we know about would be, you know, among the more serious possible crimes that the organization, not any individual, I'm not going to mention any names, <laughs> but, the, the, but the organization itself could be accused of. Uh, what I think 
last week's indictment showed was that instead of being a one-off or you've got, you know, a guy in a senior position who likes to feather his nest a little bit, but, you know, you can't impute anything to the organization. Uh, no, the, the charges were against the Trump organization as well. And further, if the CFO of the organization, if the allegations are true, then there's, there's no way that the CFO of this organization handled and hid his income um, from the tax authorities and he was like a lone wolf or a rogue employee. It has to be that other senior executives did this as, as well. It's already been reported that the chief operating officer, Matthew Calamari, also received a significant portion of, or at least a portion of his salary and bonus in the form of perks. And now he's you know, got to be thinking, even though he wasn't charged, oh man, what if they come after me? And then, of course, there are the people who are above Weisselberg and Calamari, you know, whose last name is Trump. So it's, it's, I, I think in some ways this was a signal by the prosecutors to Weisselberg that, yes, we have this on you, and we figured out, you know, how these payments are made to, you know, basically reduce, you know, the amount of tax you have to pay. Uh, and also, it's likely that there are many other people, senior levels in the company, who played this game. So that's, I think, like another element to this as well. It, it, there's no way that this, you know, behavior was confined to one person. As far as the man named Trump, former President Donald Trump, his name was on some checks, I understand. Is that yes. the only place? Uh, yes. Name? So basically his only uh, appearance uh, in the indictment was the fact that um, payments were made on behalf of Weisselberg. Uh, checks were made from the Trump Organization and were signed by, you know, the account of Donald Trump to, I think, the Columbia Prep School, the, the expensive prep school that Weisselberg's grandkids attend. Um, I, I, there's, there's no significance to the fact that it was drawn from him. I think it was clear that this was part of, you know, the Trump organization and Weisselberg's, you know, pattern of, of conduct. Um, however, um, by just, you know, inserting and allowing, you know, making sure they, 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 they made Donald Trump aware as well that they've been tracking these funds and where they go. And I think the real concern is that, you know, did Trump do anything similar to what uh, Weisselberg is alleged to have done in terms of, you know, getting paid a certain amount of money, but not, you know, obscuring or not disclosing that? Um, and uh, Cy Vance's office, the DA's office, knows it because they've got Trump's tax returns. So that I think in many ways last week's indictment served as to file charges against the CFO, to file charges against the company, but also to send a signal to Weisselberg and to send a signal to, you know, the other senior executives of the Trump organization, including the CEO, um, the former president, of what they've got, how many cards they've got in their hand. They didn't show everything, but they showed enough to know that, you know, they've, they've cracked this particular secret if this is, in fact, a pattern of behavior at the Trump organization of how people got paid. Coming back to your point about Al Capone, <laughs> you know, facetiously, it's like um, some people fantasize that the Trump organization must have had, you know, done strange deals or laundered money around the world. Who knows? But this is simple, and this is something understandable to every taxpayer in the country. It's like, you know, okay, you know, this guy, Alan Weisberg, is alleged to have not paid his taxes. And if it goes up the food chain and other senior people at the Trump organization are in the same boat, that's a crime. And it's... Uh, you know, it could be if you got, you know, refunds, 
you know, grand larceny in the second degree, which carries a serious sentence. So this is a serious this 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 indictment last week was a serious signal, not just to Weisselberg himself, but to the Trump organization and the former president, I think, about what the DA's office has. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Greg. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Greg Farrell. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.